Hey folks, it's Jared. My guest this week is Dr. Hassan Khalilia, and we're discussing Islamic maritime law. This episode was edited and produced by Brendan Costello. Here at SimSec, we aim to further international maritime security through an exchange of ideas and the rigor of critical thought and writing. If you haven't already, please check out simsec.org for new articles on the most important maritime topics. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, check out the Write for SimSec tab to learn how you can submit articles for publication. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Hassan Khalilieh, and we're going to discuss his book, Islamic Law of the Sea, Freedom of Navigation, and Passage Rights in Islamic Thought. So, Hassan, welcome. Could you tell the audience a little bit more about your background, please? I started my undergraduate studies at the University of Haifa, where I graduated from departments of nursing studies and archaeology. Then I pursued my graduate studies again at the University of Haifa in maritime civilizations. And immediately after, after I got my master's degree, I pursued my PhD in Princeton University, specializing in maritime history, in medieval Islamic maritime history. Well, welcome aboard Sea Control. As a reminder to listeners, all opinions expressed today are our own and not representative of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So, Asana, I'll start very quickly. Just like I kind of follow the uh, the path of your studies. At what point did you start to research Islamic maritime law? In fact, um, when I got to Princeton, I was thinking to write something, my thesis on medieval fortifications. And my my former advisor advised me to think about changing my, you know, changing my graduate studies into Islamic maritime law. Um, it was, you know, I had, I didn't have, you know, strong background in Islamic jurisprudence. Then he asked me this question, uh, the, Islamic, the Islamic empire expanded or extended from Southeast Asia to Morocco in the West. Do you think that the whole maritime trade could have managed without or could have managed without maritime regulations and that questions you know raised many you know those questions give me an idea wow should i pursue my graduate studies in islamic maritime law and that was you know the question that triggered me triggered uh, any thoughts how to develop this subject in fact that when i started it's not like our days i started doing uh, investigating the subject by going to the firestone library looking for specific terms associated with with maritime issues. So going uh, in the Arabic section all over classical Arabic sources was a tedious job, really tough job. And this is the way how I started, looking for fatwas, responsa on Islamic maritime issues. By, by the end of my second year, I was able to collect more than 400 responsa on maritime law. This is how I started. But, you know, it began with one question that my advisor addressed to me, and I got this question, and this is how simply I built my academic career, based on one question. So we'll jump into the book now. What was the intra-faith debate amongst Islamic scholars about how to view the sea? Because you mentioned very early in your introduction 
to the book that there was a perception Muslims were afraid of the sea. Indeed. This question also my advisor asked me when in my comprehensive exam, in my general exam. And uh, saying that Islam is afraid of sea, Islam is a religion. It's not, you know, it's a book. It's like saying Christianity is afraid of the sea or Judaism is afraid of the sea. The book doesn't, is not afraid of the sea. And you know, when you look at the Quran, you'll find that the sea was mentioned 33 times versus 11 times bar land. And so Islam gives uh, special attention uh, to the sea. If we talk about Muslims, say, yeah, you're right. You can, you could be right because not all of the Muslims have, you know, have access to the sea. Those who live in the hinterland, in the inland, you know, away from the sea, the sea is frightening. But those who live along the coastal frontiers say, okay, they make their living from the sea. And in fact, the largest Islamic country is an archipelago country, which is archaeological country, uh, which is Indonesia. So the whole, the whole country is sitting in the sea with almost 17,000 or less, 17,000 islands. So, and the largest population of Muslims around the world, you know, located, uh, you know, living in this around, you know, around the sea. And you look, for example, like India. India was, you know, the coastal frontier of India is mostly populated by Muslims. Okay. Moreover, the first migration of Muslims, you know, was carried out on the sea, by the sea, sorry. When, when Prophet Muhammad started preaching his new religion in Mecca, in Quraysh, and the people of Quraysh, you know, pursued him and his followers. He sent his followers to the king of Ethiopia. So they had to cross almost 300 kilometers or almost 200 nautical miles or less than 200 nautical miles uh, to the other bank of the Red Sea. So the first migration in Islam was, was by sea, not on land. So Islam is not afraid of sea. Probably you can say Muslims are afraid of sea. Yes, not all of them. It depends where well, you know what you you know what you meant by Muslims, those who live in the desert or those who live on the shore. Can you explain where the perception that they were afraid of the sea came from, though? Because that was what I found interesting yes, uh, in the true. early part of the introduction. That's true. There are some scholars. They say nobody can travel by sea except for pilgrimage and jihad. Jihad means strive in the cause of God. Strive in the cause of God. So we don't, you know, we don't make parallel between jihad and, and, and terrorism. So um, many scholars, in, you know, of different law schools, they say people can travel by sea for two purposes: for Hajj, pilgrimage, and 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 for for jihad. Nonetheless, we see that the Islamic Empire, especially from the Umayyad period onwards, most of the customs revenues come from from the sea. During the Abbasid period, the expansion of Islam in Southeast Asia with China, I mean, it's, you know, it's true that the Quran doesn't say that, you know, that you don't try, you don't travel by sea, you don't try the sea. But there, there are those jurists who say traveling by sea is intended for two, for two purposes only. But nonetheless, we see that many, a great rate or a considerable rate of Muslims living on the coast, make their living from the sea. So in the period that you were studying, uh, where did Islamic maritime power come from? When did it reach its peak? And what did that peak look like? The Islamic expansion in the 
Mediterranean region was not destructive. Mediterranean coastal frontiers, former Byzantine maritime installations, simply they maintained these, these installations. The first sailors of the Muslim army, of the Muslim navy, were, were Greek Orthodox or Copts. So the maritime traditions of, of the former Byzantine and in the former Byzantine territories were maintained by Muslims. But in the course of time, there are some traditions that were maintained by Muslims. There are some traditions that were brought by Muslims from Arabia, like from those who coming from who arrived from Oman or Yemen. Also, in the course of time, Muslims created presidents, legal presidents that are not found in the Rodency law and the digest or, or the civil law of Justinian. And this is basically what what was, you know, but, you know, this was my second book in a comparative law, what Muslims have inherited from the former Byzantine and former Byzantine Roman Empire, what they have rejected and what they have introduced. Where did Islamic maritime law originate from and what sort of sources were you able to find and use for your study? I looked, and we didn't have codified laws. The oldest codified maritime laws you find from for, from the early 15th century from Islamic Malayo or Islamic uh, from, from Malacca. However, we don't have codified laws, but we have responsa. We have common law. Um, we found in Islamic jurisprudence, there are regulations, there are responsa, questions, and there are fatwas. Fatwas mean you, 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 you get to um, a learned scholar and you address a question. So the question is not, you know, his his decision, sorry, his, uh, his response is not necessarily obligatory. That's to say that you can take his advice, you can either fulfill or say, okay, you can reject. There are some regulations. These regulations normally, when Muslim scholars agree on some, some issues, then they, they become a sort of rule or tradition, local tradition. If the local tradition at the port of origin states that sailors must be paid before initiate work, then, then the ship owner have, have to pay the full amount before initiating work. But if the, if, the, if the local custom says otherwise, then you have to follow the customs. So in such case, there are sometimes customs are stronger than legal decision. So, you know, they are much stronger than, 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 you know, than, than the opinion of, of a scholar. Let's get another another issue. Let's take talk about jettison, human jettison. Okay, so this is beautiful questions. Um, you know, normally we we start the PP uh, sailors and uh, and the crew, crew members and and merchants. They start throwing the materials, but when the materials are are over, we are left with the humans. How how we deal with human jettison? Some scholars says they start with, with the slaves because they are, they are human cargo. We start with the slaves. So, okay. So, okay. Why, why slaves? But the second caliph said, how you enslave people when they are, when they are, when they were born free? Okay. But some people, some people, they consider them, consider them a human cargo. Some say you, you start with the slaves. Others says, it depends. You start with the slaves, but you throw those 
who are able to swim. But when you throw them either, you know, throw them into the sea, you, you release them, you free them. Okay? Others says, no, you can't, you can't, you can't throw slaves because again, they were born free. They have, they have to be, you have to be true, they have to be chosen by lot. Okay? So they are equal like every other, every other, every other person on board. And though there are some people said, if the ship is close to the, to the shore, then you, you, you throw those who are able to swim, regardless if they are slaves or free people. So this is one, one of the controversial, controversial issues that I have encountered during my research. How did Muslim jurists approach naval warfare? Oh, naval warfare. Okay, we have two issues. We have piracy, we have naval, naval warfare. With naval warfare, Prophet Muhammad said, a campaign at sea equals to 10 campaigns on land. In such way, Prophet Muhammad encouraged, encouraged, encouraged his followers to travel by sea. In most cases, when dealing with naval warfare, the, you know, the regulations on land are applicable to regulations at sea. When you, when, when Muslims had to seize, to seize whatever enemy post or town, so they apply when, when, when they encounter, when they apply, they have to apply, you know, the, the, the warf- warfare laws, even at, you know, uh, at, at, at sea. I mean, there are no distinction between the naval warfare at sea and those on land. However, their Islamic law make a clear distinction between piracy and naval warfare. Piracy, regardless, irrespective whether the pirate, whether the you know whether whether the pirate takes part in naval expedition and even gain, uh, even score victory, Islamic law says that every pirate, every Muslim pirate who take who participates in naval warfare, that mission is not considered part of the jihad. So he has to be, he has to be adjudicated and judged based on being a pirate, not a jihad, uh, or not a striver in, in the cause of God. So even if they take part in naval expeditions, uh, such pirates have to be adjudicated according to Islamic law. Islamic law is clear about piracy, and if you want to take, we can talk a lot about it. I do want to explore that because, uh, you know, as an American, I think one of the things we get taught about is the, the quote-unquote Barbary pirates. Now, I visited Algeria, and I've been in the Algerian military museum. I have listened to the uh, the guide telling us as we walk through uh, about the Algerian, he referred to it as the Algerian Navy, and that they had many uh, agreements with countries. And that was a very different perspective for me to hear. I'm not positive I agree with him. But is that viewpoint in part based on the interpretation of law that you're referring to there is like, well, this is our Navy. So, no, these are not pirates and we're going to adjudicate them differently than 
again, like the very American viewpoint of these are pirates. You know, if, if you think about piracy in, 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 in North Africa, we have to distinguish between two terms. We have pirates and privateers. And some people claim that Khairuddin Barbarossa and his and his uh, and his uh, and his brother were pirates. Based on what I have read, they are not pirates. They are they are uh, neither pirates nor they are neither pirates nor privateers. Simply, they were uh, maritime jihadists. But um, Islamic law is is very clear. Um, if you look at the Surah Al-Ma'idah, I mean the the Last Supper. I think verse 31, 33, refer to, to brigandage. And it is clearly said that brigandage, regardless whether it takes place at sea or in land, they have to be, to be, they have to be, uh, adjudicated in accordance with Islamic principles. So the rules, the laws against piracy, which Muslims established in the 11th and 12th century, are echoed in the maritime laws of Great Britain and France. They had to be either crucified, and normally the, the, the crucifixion takes place on the shore, or expelled out of the Islamic maritime, out of the Islamic uh, territory. Normally, in fact, uh, during the Umayyad period, peri- uh, pirates were sent to the island of Dahlak, the Hakil is located nearby Babel Mandib Strait. Babel Mandib. So, Islamic law is, doesn't tolerate pirates and doesn't tolerate brigandage and on land. We can't compare, we can't associate piracy, sorry, we can't associate piracy with maritime jihadists. These are different terms. Now, back to the, to the, to the Algerian case. We know that the Algerian pirates were empowered or got their international, their, got their recognition from the, from the British Empire. And we know about the struggle between the British Empire and the, you know, the, the French Empire or the, or the French. So simply the European countries took advantage or the piracy in North Africa, or the, you know, the Berbers of North Africa. But, you know, it's a different story. It doesn't have to do with Islamic law. It has to do with international, international relations. If you look at medieval, medieval international treaties between the Italian city-states and political entities in North Africa, they have special articles referring to piracy. Both entities, the Islamic and Christian entities, had to fight piracy. So piracy normally uh, was was combated by, by you know, you know, combating combating piracy couldn't have been successful without some sort of international relations between political ent- entities around the Mediterranean. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Hassan Khalili. Hassan, where can we find you online and what is your next project? I'm writing a book on Islamic maritime laws in the Indian Ocean. Uh, 
between the 9th century and the 12th century Abbasid period, based on Geniza Karu evidence and jurisprudential sources from Oman. I hope you'll reach back out uh, once you go to publish here, because we'd love to bring you back on and talk about that and discuss the differences between uh, what you found in the Mediterranean and what you found in the Indian Ocean. But thank you again for joining us. To listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.